Good morning, people of God. Praise the Lord for his sovereignty and providence in gathering us together this morning, that he woke us up today and brought us once again another Lord's Day to be together as his people, to encourage one another, to stir up in one another uh, the hope and good works that we have in the Holy Spirit, to encourage each other in our trials in the midst of our sufferings and temptations, and to be together to hear one another praise the Lord. It is encouraging to stand and, and sing praises and to, to just look to the side and see God's people singing his praises. I hope that encourages you. You know, sometimes we come to church and we don't feel very much like worshiping. We don't feel very much like praying or digging into his word. And when we look to our left and our right and we see our brothers and sisters alongside of us praising God, it encourages us motivates us to do it with them. If you would, go and go with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We are in that famous scene of the burning bush, probably one of the most famous scenes in the Bible. Exodus 3, and today we are in verses 16 to 22. That's uh, the text that will occupy us today. If you're visiting with us, you're you're new. This uh, we are going through the book of Exodus, so it is our custom here at Four Corners to go through books of the Bible or large chunks of Scripture, like for example the Sermon on the Mount. Years ago, we did that, uh, but we work through books of the Bible sequentially. And one of the things you've heard me say often is that this really does help us to have a much richer understanding of the author's intent. That's what we're about. We want to understand what the author intended under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And as we come to these well-known texts, it is, I think, so enriching to take them in their context and to see how the preceding verses, the preceding paragraphs, have led up to these passages. So here we are. At the burning bush. And so far, Exodus has given us a problem and a solution. The problem is God's people are enslaved and afflicted in Egypt. We've read much about that. And we've read of the burdens, the heavy burdens, the ruthless behavior of the Egyptians towards the Israelites. That they are treating them violently. They are burdening them with heavy burdens killing them off, really, by hard labor, and even literally killing them off uh, immediately and directly by throwing their infant boys into the Nile. This is a, a state of deep oppression. And 430 years since Jacob had entered Egypt, so this is centuries of oppression. We're not dealing with just a few years. We're not dealing with a few decades. We're not even just dealing with a century of suffering. This is a period of suffering that would bring us back, if we were to rewind, it would bring us back to the 1600s, that length of time in which the Israelites have been suffering in Egypt. So this is the problem that has been presented to us in the book, and then we have the solution. The solution, God has heard their cries and he will deliver his people. And we find specifically in these early chapters of Exodus that God will deliver his people by means of his servant Moses, this man named Moses. So back in chapter 2, 
we saw how God prepared Moses. God was working before he ever appeared to Moses, before he ever spoke to him. God was sovereignly preparing him for the calling that he had placed on him. So he rescued him at birth. We read about that. He had him raised as an Egyptian prince. So all the learning and the wisdom and the insight of the imperial court of Egypt, the inner workings administratively, and all of the training that would have gone into being an Egyptian prince. This is how Moses was raised. And he spent early boyhood all the way up to the age of 40. That's a long time to be under the training of the Egyptians. God had prepared him. And then God removed him from Egypt to the wilderness of Midian, to the Arabian Peninsula, east of the Gulf of Aqaba. God had brought him very far away from Egypt, there to be away from all the allurements and temptations that would draw him back into Egyptian life. And God had brought him back to the kind of Uh, the, the sort of shepherding life that had characterized his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the early Hebrews. God had made Moses, as it were, a Hebrew shepherd. And he spent 40 years there in Midian. So there's Moses living a peaceful, relatively comfortable life in Midian. We know that when Moses first enters Midian, that he calls his son after the fact that he's a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses feels very much not at home. This is a very much a low point in Moses' life. He tries to stand up for his fellow Hebrews, and it only results in him be- fleeing as an exile into a foreign land. But now it's been 40 years, and Moses is seen as just sort of living a a peaceful, comfortable life in this foreign land. And then something unexpected happens. The God of Israel appears to him in a burning bush. Moses is just out keeping the flock in the wilderness like he would have many times. And God comes to him, appearing to him in a flame of fire, in a burning bush. And the miracle of it is that the bush is not burning. So this this bush is not being consumed by this flame of fire, this appearance of the Lord. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob calls Moses to go to Egypt. After 40 years of being nothing more than a a shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep, God calls Moses to go to deliver his people. And so we read about that in chapter 3, verse 10. This is what the Lord says to Moses. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And we talked about how up to this point, God is revealing how he cares for his people. And Moses is probably all in. But then at that point, the anvil drops on Moses. And God tells him that the means by which he's going to accomplish all of this deliverance for his people is through sending Moses back to the place he had fled 40 years before. Last week, we looked at Moses' second follow-up question or objection. We talked about how after God reveals that to Moses and calls Moses, Moses has these two objections, these two questions. First, he says, who am I? that I should go and do this. And God responds to that little objection. God tells him, I am with you, Moses, and I will give a sign for you. When you've come out, you'll come back to this mountain, 
and you will worship me here with the people. Well, Moses follows that up with another question. And on the surface, it might appear just to be a question. But we recognize it is also a soft objection. We learn later Moses has no desire whatsoever to do this. You know, sometimes God calls us to things we want to do. Sometimes he calls us to things that we are excited about or feel equipped for. And many times he doesn't. Many times he calls us to things we do not want to do. And maybe God has called you to do something that you don't want to do. And you've put forward objections and questions, just like Moses. Well, Moses gives his second question or objection in verse 13. If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? So what is your name that I am to bear to the Israelites in Egypt when I go to them, Lord? And God then reveals himself as the I am, this uh, profound description of who God is. I am who I am. Tell them that the I am is sent you, the self-existing one who is with his people and who is immutable, unchangeable. He does not change. God can be counted on to be the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is. God calls himself I am, and his people call him Yahweh, or he is. This is the God who will go with Moses, the I am. This is the God who will deliver his people out of Egyptian slavery. This was 3,500 years ago. This God, who was the I am 3,500 years ago, was the I am who, through his son, became flesh 2,000 years ago. And he is the same I am This morning, he is the God we've been singing and praying to. We have been actively this morning, not going through the motions and ceremonies of our religious activity. We have been singing to the Lord God. We've been singing to the I Am. We've been praying to the I Am God. The God who saved you, if you're a Christian, this is who he is. The God who has the power to save you if you're not a Christian? This is who he is. The God who is with you now and will be with you forever. The God who saved you is with you this morning. He's with you this evening, this coming week. He will be with you every day of your life through every trial and every joy right up to and through and beyond your moment of death. What a comfort. We can face anything. The people of God can face anything because he is. Like Moses, no matter where you find yourself and no matter what God calls you to do, you can count on this One thing, his presence. He is with us. 
He is in us by his Holy Spirit. Today we come to the last chunk of verses in chapter 3, verses 16 to 22. And I'll go ahead and give you the title for the sermon this morning. It is God's Agenda for Moses in Egypt. And so there it is up there, God's Agenda for Moses in Egypt. If you would, go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read God's word together. I'm going to begin in verse 1 just so we can put the whole burning bush scene together. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the living God. This is the word of the I am. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain." Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord or Yahweh, the God of your fathers The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And now we come to our passage for today, beginning in verse 16. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. 
And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. You can go ahead and be seated. This is God's word. Let's pray. Give this time of instruction from his word. Let's give this time to him and ask for his blessing. Ask that his spirit would illuminate his word and that his spirit would work in each of our hearts to accomplish his purposes by means of his word. Our Father in heaven, you are holy. You are holy, holy, holy. You are most holy. Father, we bow before you as our great God. You are our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Lord, we thank you that you have brought the kingdom into each of our hearts, that you have established the rule and reign of Christ in us. Lord, that our affections are different than they were before we were saved. Our, our loves are different. Our lives are differently ordered. And though we falter and though we sin, you reign supreme in our hearts. Father, we praise you that your kingdom has come among us and we pray that it would continue to advance in this church, in the people, in our families, in this community and beyond. Lord, we pray that your will would be done in our lives, that we would honor you in how we live, that we would make much of you, that we would be centered on your glory and not our own ends, our own comfort, our own pleasures, our own fulfillment in life. Lord, how toxic and how contagious is the spirit of this age. The love of self, the glory of man, the pursuits of worldly things. God, daily, our hearts must be purged. We pray for forgiveness. We pray for help. We pray for discernment. We ask that we would flee from the sins of this world, from the sins of our flesh, that we would flee from these sins that wage war against the soul, that we would not be like those where the seed falls among thorns and it is choked by the distractions and cares of this life, by love of riches, that we would be those who recognize that we cannot serve two masters, but we will love the one and hate the other. We cannot serve both God and money. Lord, we pray that you would 
sanctify us by your word this morning. We pray that you would purify our, our minds, that we would be offering up our thoughts and our affections to you. And Lord, we pray that you would increase our love for our brothers and sisters. We ask that we would love you by loving our neighbor as ourself. That we would love you, Jesus, by loving those who are part of the one another that you call us to so often that we would love one another. Father, would you help us see your glory, that our worldview would be shaped by your glory, that we would see the glory of your name as we go through this amazing book of the Bible, as we go through Exodus, that we would realize that the God we're reading about, this Yahweh, is, is not a distant God who acted in history past, but Lord, you are with us today. You are the same God today. Lord, we pray that we would believe that, not just theoretically, but functionally and practically, that we would believe that in how we live, in how we refrain from worry, in how we endure trials and hardships, in how we invest in your kingdom and in heavenly treasure and not in the treasures of this world. Father, we ask for your mercy this morning that you would work among us and do in us what we do not deserve. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in verses 16 to 22, God tells Moses his agenda. That's why we have the title, God's Agenda for Moses in Egypt. God tells Moses his plan. What's going to happen in Egypt? What's the big picture? What can Moses expect to take place when he arrives in Egypt? God gives him a preview. It's a, it's a flyover. It's a, a big picture vantage point of what's going to happen in Egypt. All the details that we're going to read as we go through uh, the subsequent chapters are going to be a fleshing out of this preview this big picture agenda that God puts before Moses. God lays it out for him in this passage. And I think that shows us two things about the Lord. It shows us his love, his love for Moses. Remember, we see that even hinted at in, when he calls Moses from the burning bush. He says, Moses, Moses. And that, that repetition of his name implies love. It implies uh, kindness. It implies intimacy. We see here God's love for Moses. He doesn't want Moses to have all of these surprises. So he tells him what's going to happen, how it's going to go down. We saw this with many of the prophets. God tells them, uh, even in some cases, hey, you're going to go do this, and they're not going to listen to you. But you still have to do it. So you're going to go and do this work. And here, God does the same for Moses. He shows his love and care for his servant. And God cares for all of us, those of us who serve him as Christians. We are his servants, and he cares for us. He cares for our work. He cares for our hearts. He cares for our protection. He cares that we not grow discouraged, that we not lose heart. We also see here God's sovereignty. God knows exactly what is going to happen because God governs all. He tells Moses what's going to happen. He's the only one who can do that, by the way. He's the only one who knows what is to transpire tomorrow. And he already knows everything that's going to happen in your life, in my life. 
He knows every single detail and is sovereign over every single detail of our lives. And he is guiding us now, operating in our lives now in accordance with that knowledge of and control over our futures. So we see here God in his sovereignty telling Moses what will transpire. And as we look at this agenda, we find three stages or three parts to it, God's agenda for Moses in Egypt. And so here they are. You'll see those up on the screen. First, we see a received message in verses 16 to the first part of 18, and then a rejected command, the rest of 18 up through 19, and then finally, a remarkable exit, verses 20 to 22. So let's begin looking at each of these. First, a received message message. Look with me at verse 16. We'll go up through the beginning of verse 18. A received message. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying... I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice. The first step in this process will be Moses' interaction with his own people. He will begin by addressing the Hebrews. He will begin by speaking to his fellow Israelites. That's the first thing he will do when he and Aaron, Aaron will come out to meet him. When he and Aaron enter into Egypt, he will go and he will speak with his fellow Israelites. Now keep in mind, he has not seen these people in 40 years. It has been a long, long time. But how is that supposed to happen? How is Moses to speak to the Israelites? How is he going to gather the people together? Where will he meet all of them? This people is estimated to be over two million strong when they come out of Egypt, which is shortly. And maybe well over two million. We read in chapter 12, verse 37, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children leave Egypt in the Exodus. So 600,000 men leave Egypt and then you have to factor in all of the women and all of the children. We know that Moses' parents had three children, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. So we, we don't know how many families there are without children or how many had more children than that or less children than that, what the ratio is between men and women. But I think we, we could conclude that given the fact that many of the men were killed as babies, as infants thrown into the Nile, there may very well be more women than men. We don't know. But how is it that Moses is to address over two million people? Well, God tells him to go to the elders. So he's not told to just go and stand up somewhere in the the middle of Egypt and find a place where everyone can gather around like we'll see at Mount Sinai. He's told to go to these men called the elders, the leaders of the various families and tribes of the Israelite people. 
Moses will go to these men in particular. He will gather the elders of Israel together. And it's probably the case that Aaron, who has been in Egypt, who has now gone out to meet Moses, who will in a moment go out to meet Moses, and then they will go into Egypt together, that Aaron is probably very instrumental in giving Moses the lay of the land. Moses has no idea what's been going on for 40 years. He doesn't know who the elders are. He doesn't know where the different elders might be found or how one might gather the elders together. And so Aaron probably plays a key role. Moses' brother, who has been in Egypt, Aaron probably plays a key role in gathering these men together, the elders of the people. Now this is interesting, I think, this, this notion of the people having elders because it shows God's provision for his people. Think about this for a moment. Uh, the Israelites have been in a state of extreme oppression. They've been in a state of extreme enslavement and affliction. They've been a people under the thumb, under the hand of the Egyptians. And yet, despite all of this, they have retained this internal structure. And even more, they've retained their heritage. Because as we think about these elders, we are meant to understand that they're not just random men chosen among the people. They would have been the leaders of the various families and specifically the various tribes, the 12 tribes, the 12 sons of Jacob. We know this because when Moses leaves, we know that there are very specific instructions given for the tribes. We know that the tribes travel together and the names are given. Long lists of names are given for those in these various tribes. Tribal identity. This is, this is amazing. Tribal identity has been preserved for 430 years despite all of the oppression and affliction of the people. This reminds us of God's preservation. God, despite the, the abuses and the oppression that the people have endured, God has preserved his people as a people. And not only has he preserved his people as a people, he's preserved each tribe as a tribe and the families within those tribes as families. God preserves his People. And I think there's just a little picture here for us of when we consider all the things we may endure in this life, all the ways we may be brought low in this life, and to consider the fact that God will never let go of preserving us. He will keep us intact. As we understand that spiritually, God preserves his people. He did then, he does today. And he will tomorrow. So what is Moses to say to these elders? What is Moses to say to the elders once he has gathered them together? Well, he is to deliver Yahweh's message. And the message can be summed up in two parts. If we were to summarize it briefly. Our God has seen and our God will act. That's the message that Moses is to deliver to the elders. Moses is to tell the elders that God has appeared to him and said this, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. This language of I have observed you can be traced back to Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, verse 24, 
where the same verb is translated visit. So there we read in Genesis 50, 24, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. And so with the recurring of this verb, we're meant to understand that as God is observing his people, he is visiting his people. He is visiting his people with his care. He's visiting his people with his rescue. It means to attend to with care. And in our verse, it can be translated, I have been carefully watching over you. And so it's only at this point that the Israelites in Egypt are told that God heard them. We remember their prayer. They collectively cry out to God in their oppressed state. They cry out to God in anguish. They pray to God and they hear nothing from God. But then God appears to Moses. And this is the moment. We'll read about it in the next chapter. This is the moment where the people will understand that God has always been with them. This is the moment where the people with a weak heart, those who have lost courage, those who who have begun to drift in their trust in Yahweh their God, this is the moment when all of that is gathered up, when the loins of their minds, you know, to use Peter's language, are gathered up and they are made firm in their faith. God has been watching them carefully And he has heard their prayer. That's what Moses is to say to the elders. And as we've seen already, God sees, hears, remembers, and knows. The I am is telling his people he has never left them and he never will. The second part of this message is that God will act. So our God has seen, Moses will say, Yahweh, the God of our fathers, men, listen, He will say to them, listen, God has seen. He knows and he has visited us. And then Moses will tell them that God will act. Verse 17, and I promise or I say that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here, God gives his word. He says, I say. When God speaks, it can always be trusted. Uh, There's no issue for us when we come to uh, little difficulties in the Bible. Those, Those things are present. Those things are there. Little interpretive difficulties that we have to work through. Scholars have written about and discussed these things for centuries, even for millennia. Before the people of God, we have one primary presupposition, and it is this. When God speaks, it is true, period. When God speaks, he cannot lie. His word is his speech inscribed. It is his speech written. We trust his word as those who hear him say, I say to you, I promise you. God gives his word. I say that I will do this. He will bring them out and he will bring them to, out of bondage and into a rich land. And it is so fascinating for us to consider that, and we, I've, I've referred to this many times in Genesis 15, where God comes to Abraham before he's even had a child. Abraham has no children And he asked the Lord, are you going to give me a child by my servant? 
uh, this, this servant in his household because he, he doesn't have a, ch- a child. And in Genesis 15, God reveals to Abram that he is going to give him a child from his own body. And before Abraham even has this child, this one single child, God tells him that he's going to have this mass of descendants and they're going to go into a foreign land. They're going to sojourn there. They're going to be oppressed there. And then they're going to come out of that land into a rich, broad land. God promises that to Abraham many, many years, even before Jacob is born. And here, Moses will tell the people the time of the fulfillment of this promise is at hand. God has come to do it. I want us to consider something about the Exodus. And maybe you you know this, this is obvious to you, but maybe this is not something that you have considered before. The Exodus is one huge picture. It is one huge type of what God has done for us through Jesus So I want you to consider that as we've been going through Exodus, as we see what God will do in Egypt, as we see God go to Pharaoh and bring down the plagues, as we see God bring his oppressed people out wealthy from Egypt into the promised land, all of that as Christians today, we are meant to understand as a picture of the gospel. We find this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. Here's what Paul says. He, speaking of God, has delivered us, listen to the language, he has delivered us from the domain, that's the language of slavery, that's the language of ownership, of authority, from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you're a Christian here this morning, it is because you've had an exodus. So let me just ask you, just point blank this morning, have you had your own personal exodus? Because unless you've had your own personal exodus, you are still in the domain of darkness. You're still under the authority of the evil one, still under the authority and the dominion of sin, death, hell, Satan, the world, the flesh. You're still in Adam. If you die that way, Jesus says, you will die in your sins, bathed in your sins, coated in, filled with, your sins before a holy God. By contrast, we are told that God has brought us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, purchased from, ransomed from, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you're either this morning under the domain of your sins in Sin, or you have been liberated by the forgiveness of sins. Now, we recognize that it's sometimes it's difficult to discern our conversion. You know, we do membership interviews and we talk with a whole host of people and we ask about your conversion. So if you're a member here, an elder has talked to you and asked you about your conversion. 
Uh, and sometimes it's more difficult, especially if we've been raised in a Christian family, to, to identify periods of, uh, to identify the time in which God saved us. We know that justification before God is instantaneous by nature. We know regeneration is instantaneous by nature. But we don't all, we're not always able to discern when it was that God saved us. So I'm not saying that you have to have a spiritual birthday and be able to write that down. What I am saying, though, is that, is that you have to have had your own personal exodus in order to call yourself a follower of Jesus. The New Testament holds up for us the doctrine of conversion. We must be converted. And this is one of the reasons that we are, we are cautious when it comes to baptizing children, is because we want to discern We want to to walk with them and guide them through a biblical understanding of conversion. What is true, biblical, life-transforming conversion? By the grace of God, through repentance and faith. Have you had your own personal exodus? So what will be the response of the elders of the people. Here, Yahweh tells him that they will listen to his voice. And this reminds us again of God's omniscience, his sovereignty. He tells Moses, they'll listen to you. They're gonna hear what you have to say. And so God sends Moses with this encouragement, but he's going to need that encouragement because of what we're going to read next. So look with me at verses 18b to 19. And here we move to our second point, a rejected command. So we've seen a received message on behalf of the elders, but now we have a rejected command by the king of Egypt. Verse 18b, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So the good news is that the elders will listen to Moses. But the bad news is that Pharaoh will not. He will reject Moses' words. He will refuse to let the people go. He will give Moses a big, loud, flat no. God tells him that the elders are to go with him to address the king of Egypt. (laughs) This is a picture of humility. God does this. He works in this way. He works through humble means. Just imagine. Here's Moses and Aaron, probably fairly well-dressed, at least Moses, uh, not malnourished and so forth, walking up to Pharaoh, accompanied by all these ragtag Hebrews, by all these Israelites with their tattered clothes and their shrunken bodies, and their beat down faces, aged with the burdens of slavery in Egypt. They are all to go before the Pharaoh. Collectively, they are to make a demand. Now, the language here is soft and respectful. Please let us go. But we know from chapter 5 that it is delivered to Pharaoh as a command from Yahweh. So when Moses gets to Egypt and he does what God's commanding him to do, he will say what God has commanded him to say here. But listen to what else we read in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Do you see how that's delivered? This is non-negotiable. This is not a request. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from Yahweh. Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now notice here that Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey him? Pharaoh recognizes when Aaron and Moses and these ragtag elders come and stand before him, he recognizes that this is not a suggestion. It's a command. And that's the reason he says, why should I obey him? This is a call for obedience from the living God. So we know that God's intention is to bring his people out of Egypt and into Canaan. So what is this whole business about going a three days journey? You read that there and maybe you're scratching your head. This whole business about going a a three days journey into the wilderness to sacrifice. Is God deceiving Pharaoh? Is God misleading Pharaoh? Is three days just an idiom for their indefinite exit from uh, their indefinite period of time that they will leave Egypt? Is this just some sort of idiom that's being used in Hebrew? Well, these are some of the ways that this has been interpreted, and scholars have debated what's going on here with this three days and this feast in the wilderness. But I tend to agree with the explanation of one scholar named T. Desmond Alexander and others who describe it this way. This is what he says. Pharaoh is tested through a modest request from a tormented people for a few days of rest and celebration. When he refuses, he displays his true face and acknowledges beforehand what is to follow. The more limited request to celebrate a short religious festival underlines the strong antipathy of Pharaoh towards the Israelites. So it's given here as a test to Pharaoh in the softest way it could be given. And it is still rejected. In verse 19, God tells Moses that this message will be rejected. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. That's what God says to Moses. Here we see that God knows the hearts of men. He knows. He knows the future. But later, we will see clearly that God also governs the hearts of men. He governs the future. And so we read in chapter 4, verse 21, speaking of Pharaoh... God says to Moses, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. It's interesting to me. When people talk about God's sovereignty or when they go to Romans 9 and talk about man's free will and so forth, it's interesting to me that they make a lot to do of those references in Exodus that refer to Moses, uh, to uh, Pharaoh hardening his own heart, which is true, obviously, of course, But isn't it interesting to us that as this gets going, before anything happens, before Moses goes into Egypt, God tells him this. This is like the the first of the dominoes that will follow. I will harden his heart 
so that he will not let the people go. This tells us that God doesn't just know what Pharaoh will do. He doesn't just know the future. He is also sovereign over Pharaoh's choices and actions. God himself will harden, make obstinate Pharaoh's heart in order to bring glory to his name, in order to bring out his people and to bring judgment on the Egyptians. He will show his glory over Pharaoh. In that day, Pharaoh was considered the god Horus walking around on earth. Pharaoh was seen as a god. He was seen as a god in this life, and he would pass and become a god once again in the afterlife. And God is showing that he is glorious over this unnamed supposed god and over all the gods of Egypt, for that matter. And he will do this. God will do this with a mighty hand. This language of having a a strong arm or a mighty hand hand is a common description of Pharaoh in Egyptian sources. This is a little interesting background detail, is that if you go back and you look at ancient sources, what you find is that this was a common descriptor of the Pharaohs, that they were those who had mighty or strong arms or a mighty or strong hand. An example of this would be Thutmose II. He is described as the great of power, the mighty of arm. And that is why throughout Exodus, we find this language of God having a mighty hand or a mighty arm. Why is it in Exodus that we find this all over the place? It's a a major theme within the book, that God has a, a mighty arm, a strong hand. And it is because Moses is declaring, God is declaring to Pharaoh that it is his arm, it is his hand that will prevail. So we've seen a received message. This is what Moses will encounter a rejected command, and finally, a remarkable exit. As we finish up this morning, look with me in verses 20 to 22. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor, And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. The mighty arm of Pharaoh will be shown to be puny as God stretches out his hand and strikes Egypt with all of his wonders. I think this is really important. I've been watching some documentaries on the Red Sea crossing lately, some really good ones, and uh, I'll recommend them to you if you come and talk to me. Uh, Really good books out there on the Red Sea crossing, on where is the true Mount Sinai, and just on what happened in Egypt, what what happened at the Red Sea. Uh, Very interesting uh, kinds of different views on this, but those who want to make the crossing of the Red Sea uh, this this sort of uh, very shallow kind of a body of water that just happens by the wind to, to brush aside some land so that they could walk across. There's there so many problems with that. We'll talk about some of those. But they fail to see the fact that the Red Sea crossing, as it is described, is a grand, miraculous wonder. 
It is a tower of water, a wall of water on each side. It is meant to be wondrous, absolutely wondrous. And it is in the minds of all the people. Remember what Rahab tells the spies, that the renown of God and what he had done is being told all throughout the land. All throughout the Old Testament, we find ripple effects of praising God for the parting of the Red Sea. It's just one example. It's kind of the capstone example of the wonders that God will do in Egypt and among the Egyptians, as we see at the Red Sea. These wonders. It is interesting here that the verb strike used of God is the same used of Moses back in chapter 2, verse 12, when he struck down the Egyptian. What Moses did to one Egyptian Beating a Hebrew is what God will do to the nation as a whole. And so I think, you know, going back, I told you before when when Moses struck down that Egyptian, that a lot of people get lost in the ethics of what whether or not Moses should have done that and so on and so forth. But there's more going on in the biblical account. And I think we're also meant to see in Moses' little striking of that one Egyptian, we're meant to get a little picture a little preview, a little anticipation of what the God of Moses, the God who will send Moses, will do to the entirety of Egypt. He will strike Egypt with his strong hand. He will compel Pharaoh with his outstretched arm. He will display his great power and glory. And afterwards, Pharaoh will relent and let the people go. So Moses is told that his mission will be successful. All that he will face with a a Pharaoh saying no will end in Pharaoh letting the people go. Let me just return for a moment to this word wonders. It brings us to a state of awe. This word wonder is meant to evoke a state of awe. It is a display of extraordinary miracles. This will not just be an exit Not just an exodus, it will be a remarkable, glorious exit, exit, exodus as well. But the exodus will not just be brought about by God's judgment. I want you to see this. This is fascinating. As we think about this remarkable exit, it will not just be brought about by God's judgment or outward display of power. This exit from Egypt will also be accompanied by God's power within human hearts. God will show himself glorious by controlling nature and by sending these miraculous, destructive plagues on Egypt and protecting his people in Goshen. He will show his power by bringing this two million plus people out into the wilderness and parting a sea so that they go through on dry land and then bringing that sea back down onto the Egyptian army. But he will also show his power by working in the hearts of the Egyptians. This is another way in which it will be remarkable. It will result in a peaceful plundering. Look at verse 21. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go... You shall not go out empty. Gold, silver, and garments will cover the people of Israel. These people who had nothing, 
these enslaved people will go out covered in silver, gold, and fine garments. And even their children will be covered in these things as they exit Egypt. The slaves will become rich in a single day. Those who had worked for centuries as slaves will be repaid. Those who were the lowest status in society will leave with the highest status. This too will be an act of God. We read the same thing in Genesis 39, 21 with Joseph. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. God works favor into the hearts of people disposed toward his own people. And maybe you've seen that in your own life. As you've gone through life and you've seen God's providential hand in your life and you've seen ways that God has favorably disposed people toward you to move you along in life in his sovereign plan, to care for you, to provide for you. God can do that in a moment. God can do all the networking groundwork for you by simply tapping the heart of a person, to have favor towards his people. That's what we've seen here on mass scale. God puts favor towards his people in the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shower them with gold and silver and clothing. God would grant favor, and God would keep his promise he had made to Abraham in Genesis 15, 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Notice this. The people had no need to worry. God had taken care of everything. God didn't just take care of the big thing. He didn't just send Moses to come and get them out of Egypt and make sure that Pharaoh would say, okay, go by sending these plagues. And then the people just had to figure it out for themselves. Then the people just had to to do it on their own, to rely on self, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, to worry their way through their successes. That's not the way it worked. God had already taken care of everything. Clothing, materials for living in the wilderness, materials for building the tabernacle, all provided. And while in the wilderness, God would provide for his people bread from heaven that would literally be on the ground every morning. And it would last an extra day before the Sabbath so that they would not have to go out and gather on the Sabbath. God would bring water from rocks. This reminds us of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount as we close this morning. Think about your own life. Think about God's oversight of you, his provision for you. Matthew 6, verse 8, Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. You think God is in the dark about what you need? He knows exactly what you need. The problem often is what you think you need and what God knows you need are often different. We often think we need X, Y, and Z, and we don't need any of those. We need A, B, and C, or the exact opposite of X, Y, and Z. We might need cancer in order that our faith might grow And those in our lives might see the glory of Christ. We might need to lose our job 
so that God might be glorified in our greater dependence upon him. There are many things we think we need that we don't need. God knows all, and he provides everything we need. Speaking of our basic needs, he says this in verses 32 to 33, Matthew 6, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. That's what unsaved people are doing. Waking up every day, figuring out how they're going to take care of themselves, right? And of course, we recognize that we should take care of ourselves. We should take care of our families. We're told to do this in the New Testament clearly, that this is living a wise life. Go and read Proverbs, all the ways that we should be responsible and take care for the future, make provisions, and so forth. But Jesus is clear that the way that the unbelieving pagan lives is waking up every day and figuring out how to care for self. And the Christian life is one in which we already know that God is gonna care for us. We already know that God is gonna take care of all of our needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I'll take care of you, God says. I'll provide for my people. So here, in chapter 3, verses 16 to 22, we get a little preview of what's to come in Exodus, a little preview of God's love and power on display. This is the glory of Yahweh, our God. This is the glory of the one who will never leave us nor forsake us. Just as he was with Moses, he will be for each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we glorify your name. We thank you that you have already glorified your name and you've glorified it through saving us, God, through bringing us out of Egypt by bringing us out of the bondage of our sin, bringing us out of a state of dominion of darkness. Father, we praise you that you've brought us into the glorious light of your Son, a place of forgiveness of sins that we no longer bear the guilt of our sins. We no longer are enslaved to the power of sin. We thank you that you are the same God today as you were that day, that real day in Midian, that time when you came to Moses and you spoke to him. You promised him and you called him and you gave him a message. You gave him a charge. You gave him a plan. Lord, you are the same God today with us. We are your children. You are our Abba. We praise you, Father. Help us to trust you in all things. And be with us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. May our hearts be filled with faith. May we trust in our God. In Jesus' name, amen.